0: All right, this morning we continue our look at dispensationalism using the 1917 Schofield Reference Bible. We are taking a, our approach really is to basically walk through everything Schofield has to say in regards to dispensationalism. Um, It would be, it would probably be easier, because there's all, you know, thousands and thousands of books written on the subject. I could grab a book and give their little outline and their little descriptions but I thought it would be much more valuable trying to see, like going back to 1917, you buy this Bible and then trying to process what this is, right? Or for anyone, any, any Christian who just happens to buy a study Bible and actually pay attention to everything in it, trying to understand this system. Because I think if we walk through the actual study Bible itself, trying to figure out how it's laid out, we get a better idea of at least the kind of the, not really the foundation but one of the major points in the system known as dispensationalism, and we see how it was originally laid out. And then we can, if we need to, we can add more to it. We can look at how the, the 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 system has been has evolved, all the different variations of it. We could get into that. But the main thing, just for a historical purpose, trying to see how the system looked in 1917, and trying to understand what was being said, because. Whether we agree with everything in it or whether we don't, it's very important to understand it because as we've talked about now over and over and over, these systems basically become people's hermeneutics. And until you're ready to acknowledge that you've been interpre- you've been doing eisegesis, you've been reading into your Bible instead of pulling out from your Bible, unless you're willing to admit that, there's no, there's no fixing the problems because everyone has their system and then their system becomes the right way and everyone else is wrong and they think that they're right based off the Bible, but really they're just arguing on the basis of their system. So seeing how a system is kind of put together, how it's outlined, how it kind of is formed, I think is, is important for just taking all systems apart, taking all systems apart. So let's go back and see, we'll, we'll try to, review a little bit, and then try to... Hopefully, we can just get through everything. I know there's a lot in this to work through, but it, I think ultimately it will be valuable. So we, we made it through all the introductory material, and then using the, the 1917 Anniversary Edition, I'm on page 5, and remember where... See, this is in Genesis chapter 1, I believe. I believe this is out, Genesis chapter 1. And then um, on... If you look on the page itself, you'll note that you've got the text of Scripture in the center column. Remember, he mentions for the first time the eight covenants, which is very, very important, right? we got to make sure we get these eight covenants down. And then to the right, um, right above verse 28, he says the first dispensation, innocency. Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 28 to chapter 3, verse 13. Now, we did discover... Um, if you If you look at certain books, the way, even though they say they're pulling from Schofield, they actually have different scripture references or how far the section that it covers. So there seems to be, even changes that has occurred, like sometimes it bothers me because you'll read a book going, this comes from the 1917 Schofield Bible. But when you actually have the 1917 Schofield Bible, you find out almost instantaneously they're not pulling from the 1917. So I don't know why they're claiming that. That's why it's important to go back to the source. The source. But here he says, the first dispensation, innocency. Genesis 1, verse 28 to chapter 3, verse 13. The first or Edenic covenant conditioned the life of unfallen men. So right there, when he introduces the first dispensation, what does he introduce with it? The first covenant, the Edenic covenant, okay? Now, which is very important because we wanna see how the covenants and the dispensations, what, how do they correlate? How do they relate? How do they fit together? How should we understand the, the correlation here and see if he, he does anything with that? So that's the first time Really, you're introduced to it if you're just reading the text of the Schofield Bible. You will notice in the center column the eight covenants. And then you'll notice then finally the first dispensation and you're introduced to it here. But if you look down into the study notes, we remember this very important paragraph. A dispensation is a what? For those who remember, a period of time... Okay, yeah, dispensation is a period of time during which man is tested in respect of obedience to some specific revelation to the will of God. Now, this is very important because he, now, later on, maybe they're going to define dispensation different, but he defines a dispensation, really, there's two aspects to it. What are the two aspects to a dispensation according to Schofield in 1917? It's a period of time we got, we got to make sure we have that one down first, right? A dispensation is a period of time. We have to have that because that's going to, because even later on, if people drop the test idea, they're going to still maintain this is a specific time, right? So it's a specific time period. And then Schofield wants us to know that what happens during that time period is a test. All right. And then the, then the next time period signifies a change and a new Test. All right, so we want to at least get that get that down to some level, and we'll we'll come back to that. All right, so then he identified the first dispensation as being what, innocency, right? And it covers Genesis one, verse twenty eight to chapter three, verse thirteen. And we know what that section covers. What does that section cover? The creation of man, their time in the garden. And then what is the test? What is the test in that time? Tanadi of the tree, right? Okay, we know that. And we know what happens. They fail, all right? And um, and so I'm just, I know we already covered this. I'm going to review this quickly. I'm just going to read what he has to say about this dispensation. Man was created in innocency, placed in a perfect environment, subject to an absolutely simple test and warned of the consequences of disobedience. The woman fell through pride, the man deliberately. God restored his sinning creatures, but the dispensation of innocence ended, and judgment, and the expulsion from the garden. All right? Then he goes on to name the other dispensations, and those other dispensations were, number one is innocency, number two, conscience, number three, Human government, number four, promise, number five, law, next, grace, and next, kingdom. Also note, this is very important, if you look in books about dispensationalism, sometimes they'll say they're pulling from the 1917 Schofield Reference Bible, but they have completely, they have different names for these dispensations. So once again, when sometimes people tell you that that's the source they're pulling from, you got to go check the source, because in many cases it's not, In many cases, it it may be a later edition of Schofield. But the 1917, the dispensations are, well, let's see if we can get these memorized. Number one is innocency. Number two is conscience. Number three is human government. Next. Promise. Next. Law. Grace. Kingdom. All right. We got those. We just want those down. Okay. Now, the Edenic, the covenants. How many covenants? So there's how many dispensations? Seven. How many covenants? Eight. The covenants are, the first one is the Edenic Covenant, and that's the first of the eight great covenants of Scripture. Uh, He says which, now this is interesting, because when referring to the Edenic Covenant, remember, what is the dispensation? Period of time Where's a test. Now look at how he describes the Edenic Covenant. We did not emphasize this on Wednesday. The Edenic Covenant is the first of the eight great covenants of Scripture. Listen to this part which condition life and salvation and about, all, about which all Scripture crystallizes. Has seven elements. Meaning that he's almost seeing what, what that, within the Edenic Covenant that we have what? A test. Right? There's a condition. There's a condition. Like, hey, they've been given life. What's the condition to keep that life? Don't eat it of the tree. Because if you do in the day you do, You'll die. So there's a test. So it's interesting that he has the dispensation and the covenant both seemingly to have a test. Now, is that going to play out all the way through? We'll, we'll have to see. Now, he says here, the man and woman and Eden were responsible. And he says there's seven elements here. Seven elements. All right. Did, uh, we didn't outline these, did we? Okay, so we're going to just outline. Here are what he believes are the seven elements, I guess, to the Edenic Covenant. Uh, so here they are. You ready? Number one, to replenish the earth with a new order. Right? They were to replenish uh, the earth. Number two, to subdue the earth to human uses. Number three, to have dominion over the animal creation. Number four, to eat the herbs and fruits. Number five, to keep, to till and keep the garden. And number six, to abstain from eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then number seven, he just has the penalty, death. Those are all the elements. Meaning that this covenant, I guess what's the main thing you would want to take from this covenant? What would you want to take from the Edenic covenant? When you look at all seven of those elements. What would you what, what should we take from that covenant? What's probably a major thing we should take from it? Do we need me to repeat those or anything? Okay. All right? What should we take from them? Okay, it's conditional. It's very much a works-based covenant, right? Hey, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And then a clear specific test there is don't eat of this tree if you do death, all right? So it's very much a conditional covenant. It's a works-based covenant. I don't think there's any way to get around. You have to at least acknowledge that, right? Okay, and we would argue I think we can agree if if that, and and just please try to see how this works, all right? Because um, a a lot of times people would say, when you read the Bible, would you see these dispensations? Would you see these situations? Here's what I would say. We have to at least acknowledge this much, whether we agree with dispensationalism or whether we uh, reject it. I'm trying to get you to see this as we process this. When you start reading your Bible and you're reading Genesis 1 and you're reading Genesis 2 and you're uh, right up to the beginning of Genesis 3, I think you can t- agree that there is a, mass- a massive change between Genesis 1, 2 and everything that follows after 3, right? Something big changed, right? Something happened. Now, that 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 to me signifies, well, then do I interpret everything after Genesis 3 the same way I would interpret things in Genesis 1 and 2? In other words, God seems to be maybe handling things in a different way. There's a different, something has changed. That change at least should put a marker in your mind. I will say this, just look at it from this place, that it, from this pr- perspective. The Edenic Covenant is workspace. there all day long. And if we believe that uh, as Christians, our salvation is based on grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, and apart from works, clearly something changed between the Edenic Covenant and where we are today. Right? Something drastically changed. So whenever we see these changes, right, whenever we see these changes, you have to mark them. Right? And then you have to determine, why was there a change? And how do, we, how do we look at things now the same way we would look back in that particular time period? That That is the, like, if you want to get to like the very basic, 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 basic concept of dispensationalism, that's what dispensationalism is claiming. There's a time something happened and things are not the same as then. And everyone has to signify those to some way. So the first covenant was the Edenic covenant. Now, let's re- remember the rest of these covenants. The second one is the Adamic, the, thir- the next, Noah, right, next, Abrahamic, next, Mosaic, next. And remember, what did I say about the Palestinian covenant? Okay, it's related to land and it is filled with do this, don't do this, I mean, it is works-based. All day long. That Palestinian covenant is maybe the most works-based covenant of them all. There's no way to get around that one, okay? And remember, there's a lot of debate over that one, but it's very important. Because if that, if that one is all about land, then we can see why they didn't get the land, why they lost the land. And then if land shows up again elsewhere, then, well, then we have lots of issues to consider. And the next was the Davidic and then the New Covenant. For some weird reason, Schofield sends us to Hebrews 8 for it. He should have sent us to Jeremiah 31, and we don't know. We don't understand all of that. Okay? So those are the dispensations, those are the covenants. All right. What we can see is starting out the Edenic covenant. What can we say about it? Works-based. What can we say about the first dispensation? Works-based. Right? Can we agree? All right? And in both cases. Failure. All right. We've got to stress that. Like, I cannot even begin to explain to you how much we have to express that. Okay. Now, we, uh, using the Schofield Reference Bible, we turn in it to Genesis chapter 3. And then, well, the thing we'll see right above verse 14. All right. Here we go. Right above verse 14. We did not cover this on Wednesday. We did not cover this on, the, on, on Wednesday. Genesis chapter 3, right above verse 14. Can, can anyone guess what the words are in the heading? Right above verse 14 in the 1917 Schofield Reference Bible. The second or Adamic covenant. Here's where the next covenant shows up. So if you're going to keep track of the dispensations and the covenants, here's where you need the, the uh, this is where the next covenant comes into play. All right. Now listen to what he says here. Listen carefully, everybody ready for this one? The Adamic covenant conditions the life of fallen man. Conditions which must remain till in the kingdom age, the creation all shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption and to the glorious Liberty of the sons of God. He says these conditions on the life of the fallen man established in the Edemic Covenant stays into effect all the way till when? The kingdom age. So now we have a covenant and then we have, now he's connecting it to a dispensation, is he not? But please note, what did he say about the Edemic Covenant? It conditions... It conditions, it's works. I cannot stress to you the works-based uh, aspect of this. Now, what do you think he's getting ready to outline here? The elements of the Edemic Covenant are, are you ready for the elements? All right, here are the elements, okay? And um, I'm just gonna read them the way he has it. I'm gonna read them the way he has this. Um, but there's, it looks like there's seven again. Looks like there's seven again. And maybe he just likes, he loves numbers, obviously, right? He likes to break everything into numbers, right? So here we go. Um, number one, and I'm going to read them the way he has written them. So if it's confusing or anything, just, we're just trying to understand this system. Here we go. Number one, these are the elements of the Adamic Covenant. Number one, the serpent, Satan's tool is cursed and becomes God's illustration in nature of the effects of sin, from the most beautiful and subtle of creatures to a loathsome reptile. The deepest mystery of the atonement is is intimated here. Christ made sin for us and bearing our judgment is typified by a brazen serpent. Brass speaks of judgment and the brazen altar of God's judgment and the labor of self-judgment. All right? So there's a lot here, but the main thing he wants us to know is the serpent is it, the serpent Satan's tool is cursed and becomes an illustration of the effects of sin. Because he's making an argument that the serpent in a sense was a beautiful and subtle creature and was turned into a reptile. That's his argument. And when we need a mystery or an illustration of, of atonement, Christ has made sin for us and he is typified by a brazen serpent in Numbers chapter 21 and John chapter 3. So he sees a lot of imagery here. All right? But what do we have immediately in the Sedemic covenant? We have the serpent being cursed, right? Number two, the first promise of a redeemer. And where does he think he's going to find the first promise of the Redeemer in the Ademic Covenant? 3.15. Now remember, not everyone agrees on this, okay? But it's 3.15. Everyone knows the verse. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shall bruise his heel. According to Schofield, here begins the highway of the seed and then he traces it through Abel. Uh, Abel, Seth, Noah, Sham, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, and then Emmanuel, uh, Christ. So he says, "There's the first promise." Number three, third part of the uh, third element of the Adamic covenant: the changed state of the woman. There's three. He says that there are three particular changes to the state of of. The woman, a multiplied conception, motherhood linked with sorrow, and the headship of the man. It says the entrance of sin, which is disorder, makes necessary a headship, and it is vested in the man. That probably would not go well in 2023, okay? Right. But, okay, well, it probably didn't go well in 1917 either, okay? Probably didn't go well for Eve either, Okay, but there we go. Do you you need me to repeat those? Okay, Uh, multiplied conceptions. Then number two, motherhood linked with sorrow. And number three, the headship of the man. Okay, the fourth element, as he calls this, of the Edemic Covenant are, the earth is cursed. For man's sake, it is better for fallen man to battle with a reluctant earth than to live without toil, according to Schofield. That's an interesting quote. Okay, it is better for fallen man to battle with a reluctant earth than to live without toil. It says the earth is cursed for man's sake. Like, he almost believes the curse was a positive thing for man. I guess now that we're sinful, it's better to... uh, fallen man to battle with the reluctant earth than to live without toil maybe because of our sinful nature now if we lived without toil it would probably be a bad thing i don't know that's an interesting perspective all right then number five this is all part of the edemic covenant you ready the inevitable sorrow of life life is just going to be filled with sorrow All right, then number six, the light occupation of Eden is changed to birdsome labor. That A major change happens here in this covenant. You go from the light responsibilities in Eden to now you're going to have birdsome labor that's going to be a part of life. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, because well, I see. I, I I I'm okay that they change it, I guess, but I would prefer, like, I mean, unless someone from Schofield's family said it was okay to change it, I don't like them changing it because I would rather Schofield's work be left the way he wanted it. The like the light occupation of Eden is changed to a birdsome labor, and then number seven. Physical death. Well, there's there's some there's a, it's going in that direction. Okay, but what do we? So what can we say about the Edenic covenant? It's workspace. Okay, we we got to get this. Okay, it's condition. It's workspace. And in the Adamic covenant, well, I mean it's filled with all kinds of. Well, once again, he says the Adamic covenant does what. Conditions the life of fallen man. Conditions which remain till in the kingdom age. So it's still conditional and guess what it's filled with? Curses and judgment and punishment, yes? All right, I want to stress that. Why why am I so, if if you're not catching on, why am I so emphasizing this? There's an entire different theological system that controls what a lot of people, however, when reads the Bible. It's known as covenant theology, right? How, does they, how do they outline this? What's the first covenant in covenant theology? Covenant of works. That happens in the garden. It fails. And then after that, there's only one other covenant. Covenant of grace. Well, I, he has two covenants already, and none of them are grace yet. Does that make... Do you see that that's a major conflict, right? It's a major difference. Because they would say the covenant of grace really begins in Genesis 3.15. And then every other covenant is just an, like an administration of the covenant of grace. And remember, we found ourselves having major conflict with that when we got to Jeremiah 31, which says, I'm making a covenant not like the others. Well, they would say Jeremiah 31 is just a a, a different administration of the covenant of grace established in Genesis 3.15, but there's no way you're going to tell me the Palestinian covenant is a covenant of grace. That's just ridiculous, right? And if the edemic covenant is a covenant, I don't, none of that, that at least what he outlined, none of that sounds like grace other than Genesis 3.15, right? But everything else is filled with curses and judgments and death. So there is the edemic covenant, all right? So now we've looked at the adenic, We've looked at the Edenic, right? We've got those two down. And So far, which dispensation we looked at this morning is only the dispensation of innocency. Now, if you continue in your Schofield Bible, well, guess what happens when you turn to page 10? If you look carefully, the note right above Genesis 3.22 reads, the judgment of the expulsion ends the first dispensation, yeah. Oh, death? yeah, death. Okay. Yeah, okay. Okay, all right. So, so the judgment, so in, right above Genesis 3.22, we have the judgment of the expulsion ends the first dispensation. So here's the ending of the first dispensation. They're kicked out of the garden. Now, can we all agree? Again, I, 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 well, I'm not asking anyone to agree with dispensationalism. Can we agree? When they're kicked out of the garden, that is a dramatic change. Absolutely dramatic Everything changes. The earth changes, they change, everything changes. So we know there's a dramatic change, right? So I think we can agree with that, right? Um, And then verse 22 reads, uh, and the Lord God said, behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. Now let he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So then he is out. And then guess what? Right underneath that verse, The heading is the second dispensation, conscience. And according to the the note here, it goes from Genesis 3.22 all the way to 7.23 is what he has here. We'll we'll go to 7.23 in a minute, all right? Everybody got that? Now, guess what he, remember what he said about the second dispensation of conscience? Here we go. By disobedience, Man came to a personal and experimental knowledge of good and evil, of good as obedience, of evil as disobedience to the known will of God. Through the knowledge of conscience, though, or it says, through the knowledge, uh, conscience awoke. Expelled from Eden and placed under the second or Adamic covenant, man was responsible to do all known good to abstain from all known evil and to approach God through sacrifice. Once again, meaning that under the Edemic Covenant, you see all the different things are supposed to do. He's now connecting the dispensation with the covenant. You see how these are interlinked, right? Typically, when you teach it, I, I, I know I always do everything different, but I do it for a reason because so many times when you listen to teaching on dispensationalism, they just pull out and give you what? The seven dispensations. What are they not connect, connected with? The covenants. I'm trying to show you how these are interlinked so you have a better grasp of the system. Okay? So it says, Through, uh, through, through that knowledge, conscience awoke, expelled from the Eden, and placed under the second or Adamic covenant, man was responsible to do all known good, to abstain from all known evil, and to approach God through sacrifice. The result of this second Testing. The result of this second testing of man is stated in Genesis six five. Everyone, look at Genesis six five. What is the end? Uh, what What is the result of this testing? Yeah, God saw that the wickedness of man was great. How well? So, how well is the second test going? Not well. And the dispensation ended in the judgment of the flood. Apparently, then it says, the east of the garden, where there was cherubims and the flame, remained the place of worship through the second dispensation. All right? So where did they go to worship during the second dispensation? Back to the entrance of the garden where they had been expelled. But the main thing is, where does this one end? Well, he says it ends with the flood. Now, I'm going to go over in my Bible now. Okay, I'm just looking carefully, looking carefully. I'm going through chapter five, then I look at chapter six. We have uh, headings here. All right, I'm looking here, looking carefully, and then um, chapter seven. Guess what he has as a heading for chapter seven? The judgment of the flood, uh, end of testing under the second dispensation. Right. We have the flood. And then um, if we look at chapter 7, verse 23, and that where he said it ended, he says 723. Now, again, the weird thing, remember 1917, obviously, sometimes it's really iffy the way he's got his headings. And sometimes you're kind of like, uh, Mr. Schofield, uh, what are you doing here? Because he says it ends in 723. But if you look in the actual Bible, there's no heading there. There's nothing, he puts the heading at the beginning, the judgment of the flood, the end of testing under the second dispensation. But verse 23, he says, and it reads, and every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven and the fowl of the heaven and they were destroyed from the earth and Noah only remained alive and they that were with him in the ark. All right, so it ends in, Judgment and, once again, death. I think we're starting to catch on to the fact that these are ending in death. Okay, Then if I turn the page to page 16, guess what he has right above verse 20? Right above verse 20. You ready? The third dispensation, human government. Genesis 8, 20 to chapter 11, verse 9. And then guess what he has connected with it? The third or Noach covenant. All right, so he's got both here. So we're going to read about both. Okay, here we go. Any questions so far? Are you keeping track of both? All right. So how many dispensations have we looked at so far? We've looked at number one, which was innocency, and it ended with expulsion. Right. Okay. In a sense, you could say death. But okay. Next, conscience, and it ended with. Flood or death, all right? And now we're getting ready to look at human government. The first covenant was Edenic, and the second was Adamic. Now we're getting ready to move to the third. What? And all of those covenants, there were conditional, and there was failure and judgment. Are you getting a basic idea? Now, at this point, you could start raising your hand as a good student and say something like this. So wait a minute. So we've had two different dispensations. Right. We've had two different covenants and all of them have failed. Why doesn't God come up with a better plan? Right. I mean, at this point, don't you start kind of getting like, okay, how many of these do we have to go through? Uh, We know we're going to go through a lot. It it does start raising that question. Like, what in the world? All right. But here we go. I'm going to read about the third dispensation and then we'll read about the third covenant. Here we go. The third dispensation, human government under conscience. As in innocency, man utterly failed. And the judgment of the flood marks the end of the second dispensation and the beginning of the third. The declaration of the Noahic covenant subjects humanity to a new test. We get a new test. We have a new test now. We have a brand new test. Is that good news? Okay, and no, no, it's never, not based on okay. all right, let's just say, whenever we read the word that there's a test, it's not good news. Can, can we all agree with that? It's not good news in any way, shape, or form, okay? It's not, all right, so there's going to be a new test. Its distinctive feature is the institution for the first time of human government. The government of man by man. The highest function of government is the judicial taking of life. All other governmental powers are implied in that. It follows that the third dispensation is distinctly that of human government. Man is responsible to govern the world for God. That responsibility rested upon the whole race, Jew and Gentile, unto the failure of Israel under the Palestinian covenant. It brought the judgment of the captives, when the times of the Gentiles, uh, they brought the judgment of the captives, when the time of the Gentiles began, and the government of the world passed exclusively into Gentile hands. That both Israel and the Gentiles have governed for self, not God, is sadly apparent. The judgment of the confusion of tongues ended the racial testing that of the captivities, the Jewish, uh, the Jewish, while the Gentile testing will end, and the smiting of the image in Daniel 2, and the judgment of the nations. All right, so there's a lot going on here, but basically, what is this test? It's the test, okay, okay, There. I'll read all of that again, okay, I'll read all of that again, because I know there's a lot here, but we, we'll make sure we get the basic idea. All right, so what's the distinctive feature of this Uh, Covenant, or I'm sorry, this dispensation. Yeah, it's the institution for the first time of human government. It is the government of man by man. Everybody got that? What is the highest function of government according to Schofield? The judicial taking of life. All other governmental all of their governmental powers are implied in that. Everybody got that? It follows that the third dispensation is distinctly that of human government. So this is a distinctively human government dispensation. He says man is responsible to govern the world for God. Now, that's a big claim. We could have all kinds of discussions about that. If man was responsible to govern for God, if we we were going to ever say this, where would we have seen it? If this was ever true, where would we have seen this concept played out? No. Let me read it again. Let me read it again. I want to make sure we get this is very important. According to Schofield, man is responsible to govern the world for God. Man is responsible to govern the world for God. If we're ever going to see this play out in any meaningful way in Scripture, where where was this supposed to play out at? In Israel, right? Because they were operating under what form? Yeah, theocracy, right? And then if, if if then if you say it changed from a theocracy to a king, it was a, the- a theocratic white monarchy. Agreed? Right? That's if it was ever going to play out there. Now, see this is where dispensationalism becomes very important, right? Because then the question is, are we called as a church to try to rule the world for God? I don't think so. I think that something dramatically changed between the theocratic monarchy of the Old Testament to what the church, the church is never called to try to do that, right? I don't think it's ever called. That's where I would think there has to be a change because I do know this, all of the attempts for man to rule the world for God, how did it work out every single time? It failed. In fact, Schofield's going to even acknowledge that, all right? And he says that responsibility rested upon the whole race, Jew and Gentile. Now, he says everyone had the responsibility to do this, Jew and Gentile. Okay, we, we can talk about that. He says until the failure of Israel under the Palestinian covenant. So that this was the responsibility and it ended in failure because they did not keep what? The Palestinian covenant. They fell under the Palestinian covenant, which we'll, we'll get to. Remember I told you that one was super important? And it says, this brought, this failure brought ju- the judgment of the captives when the times of the, uh, when the, times of the Gentiles, because this is uh, very important, began. So in other words, this, this judgment goes basically from they're taken into captivity, and then he's basically making an argument, in reality, they never truly come out of captivity, even though it seems brief because they immediately go back under the control of Rome, then the Jews are wiped off the face of the earth, and then that's referred to now as the time of the Gentiles, that the time of the Gentiles are now ruling and reigning and controlling, and the Jews have been pushed aside, right? Okay, this is called the time of the Gentiles. All right, um... It says, began and the government of the world passed exclusively into the, uh, to the Gentile hands. He goes, basically, the government of the world passed exclusively into the Gentile hands. In other words, the Jews were no longer ruling or controlling the world. And I think that that's still fair to say. Agreed? Okay. Um, and he in, he, in the middle of all of these, like, that's why sometimes it's hard to read because he'll, like, have a word and then he'll have, like, this open parenthesis with, like, a list of scriptures and then you have to follow, and then all of a sudden he'll start reading. It. He'll, the words will start again, and you're like, Where is the sentence? Could you just give me the sentence, and then not then give me the scripture reference? Don't jump them right in the middle of it, all right? Um, see, skip all of those scriptures. Okay, that both Israel and the Gentiles have governed for self, not God, is apparent. So, what has happened under this dispensation of human government? They fail. What did man do, both Jew and Gentile? Govern for self, not God. The judgment of of the confusion of tongues ended the racial testing, that of the captives, the Jewish, while the Gentile testing will end in the smiting of the image. Now, that means he's he's interpreting Daniel 2 as being prophetic, and the smiting of the image has something to do with the Gentiles, and the judgment of the nations. Now, if you look at Matthew 25, Go to Matthew 25 very quickly, 31 through 46. This one is important. Yeah, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. All right, this is very important. Matthew 25, we're going to take the time to look at this one. All right. Okay, Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he shall sit upon the throne of his glory and before him shall be gathered all nations and he shall separate from uh, them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. Now, immediately we realize this is where dispensationalism comes into play. A lot... Not everyone agrees on this judgment, all right? Some people believe this is just the, like, just so that you know, there are different systems of theology. Some believe there's how many judgments in the Bible? One. Others believe there are multiple judgments. Four, five, some say six. Multiple judgments. Schofield, immediately, just from that note back there under the dispensation of human government, he clearly believes that this is a judgment upon the nations and this is not the great white throne. This is something different. And he believes that this judgment in Matthew 25 does what? Let me read that again. Uh, You see, the judgment of the confusion of tongues ended the racial testing of the captives the Jewish, while the Gentile testing will end with the smiting of the image and the judgment of the nations. So the testing of the Gentiles will end with the judgment of the nations found in Matthew 25, 31 through 46. And when you look at the note from Matthew 25, 31 through 46, guess what Schofield explained? Are you ready? The judgment is to be distinguished from the judgment of the great white throne. Here we go. Immediately, Schofield is establishing what, what system? That there's more than one judgment. More than one judgment. Why is that a significant thing from a hermeneutical standpoint? That's how you're going to interpret. Look, look, if you go with a hermeneutic that says there's only one judgment, then no matter how many different judgments you read, you believe they're all just different elements of The one, if you have a system that says that these are different judgments, then how do you interpret them as different judgments? Now, guess what? Are you determining that because of your exegetical study of the text? Or are you placing it there because you've been taught that and now you're reading it into the text? See how the system drives the the interpretation? That's what I'm trying to get across here. You've got to see when you're doing that. It's not about questioning what we believe. It's about you figuring out for yourself going wait a minute, I'm reading this because I was taught it. Your job is, remember, in the Protestant world, and people may not like this, but it's not my fault. If you want to be a Protestant, you claim the right and responsibility to judge me. You claim the right and responsibility to judge an entire denomination. You claim the right and responsibility to tell everyone they're wrong, and you get to choose the church of your own liking. Well, if you want that much responsibility, then it's up to you to be able to figure out what the text says. Now, nobody wants, everybody likes the, re- the power that comes with that. Nobody likes the responsibility that comes with that. Because the responsibility is you, be, you should be able to show me exegetically how you arrived that there's one judgment or multiple judgments. But if I start having that argument with someone, you know what they're going to do? They're going to hop on Google and find an article that supports their their point of view, meaning that they're not going to do the actual work of the text. I wish Christians would just stop playing that we believe the Bible is the authority because we don't. We believe our system is. So he goes on. The judgment is to be distinguished from the judgment of the great white throne. Here, there is no resurrection. The persons judged are living nations. No books are opened. Three classes are present. Sheep, goats, brethren. The time is at the return of Christ and the scene is on the earth. All these particulars are in contrast with Revelation chapter 20. The test in this judgment is the treatment accorded by the nations to those whom Christ here calls my brethren. The brethren are the Jewish remnant who will have preached the gospel of the kingdom to all nations during the tribulation. So he said basically the test here. This judgment is to judge how the nations have treated Israel. That's the, that's the argument. That is, a, that is a distinctly dispensational concept. That the, Jew, the Gentile nations are going to be judged based on how they treated Israel. That, that's an oversimplification, but that's where he's going with this. All right. Everybody got that? Any questions here? The third dispensation is human government. And Genesis 8.20. And where does it stop? 11.9. Now, I struggle with that a little bit. I struggle with that a little bit. Because he, he... Do you you see where we could possibly have a a little difficulty with this dispensation and its timing? It seems like it's ongoing, right? Yeah, because he's talking about this entire period. They fail, fail, fail. Typically, the dispensation has a clear start, a clear test, a clear failure, a clear judgment. Move on. This one's a little perplexing to me. Does everyone see the confusion I'm having? Like, I'm like, where, where does this one end? Yeah, but clearly, I mean, we, we can see the failure over and over and over and over again, but was there one clear, distinct failure that happens? Now, he says it ends according to my, according to the Schofield Bible, and if, 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 you, if you're using the later Schofield Bible, you can tell me if they give a different scriptural reference. He has it written down here. It's Genesis 8.20, right? Okay. And then it goes to 11.9. What happens in 11.9? He confounds the, the language. He did bring it up. He kept going. I guess what he wanted to show is hey, it failed early, and then the failure just continued on and 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 on. Right. Well, I think, I, think what, I think what he's just trying to establish is it fails almost instantaneously, and then he just shows that it continues to fail throughout all of history. And that a governmental change did happen; that obviously the government was handed over to the Gentiles, but that with, with the concept failed almost instantaneously. Now you you could say, well, then what would still be binding? I know well, we're going to have to stop right here because we're we're at ten fifty seven. But that is to me, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's so much we could do here. It's very interesting where he puts the, yeah, because he starts the fourth dispensation in chapter 12. So, yeah, we're, we're going to have to come back to that one. That one's fascinating to me. But, so I guess we can say this. The beginning of the covenant happens where? Genesis 8. Or, I'm not sorry. The beginning of the dispensation happens at 8. It ends with the Tower of Babel, it seems. Because what would happen with the Tower of Babel? The people gather not to serve God or to govern for God, but they serve to govern for themselves. And that's the immediate... And from after that point on, what do we have play out throughout all of history? Failure. the, The failure of it, but the dispensation is over because they already failed. So God has already moved on to another dispensation. But the whole governmental concept continues. Once the governmental concept is established, in that dispensation, the governmental concept continues, but it's going to always be met with what? Failure, 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 failure. Yeah, he's going to tie, atti- he's going to, he's going to, he's going to atti- uh, he, he will tie this to the Noah covenant uh, here in a minute, I think. Yeah, because uh, right at chapter 11, guess how he has chapter 11 uh, titled. <laughs> The failure of man under the Noah covenant <laughs> okay. so right and has has he uh where did he have we already looked at the institution of the Noah covenant no, we just wrote the scripture. okay we just wrote the scripture to it uh, which is in chapter 9 as well so basically the third the third covenant begins basically the same time the third dispensation is or re- relatively close well we'll start with the elements of the Noah covenant here in a minute all right, so that's, that's interesting. So he has the failure of human government like happening almost instantaneously. Hey, we're going to establish human government and then the humans are like, okay, we're going to take power and we're going to immediately do what? We're going to govern. Almost, you can almost say this, the, the dispensation of human government basically established this motto. Um, a government by the people, for the people, in opposition to God, okay. That's basically it's like it's about us. We're going to get what we want, and that's exactly what happens. And they it fails immediately. And I'm assuming the failure happens under the Noah covenant. So that both, so we're going to end up with three dispensations and three covenants that all have conditions, and they all fail. They all fail. All right, want we'll to stop there? Okay, we'll pick this up in the next hour. All right, Lord God, we come before you uh, this morning. We thank you for the ability to try to work through these very difficult concepts and understand them. But Lord, most importantly, I pray that we would see how these concepts, whether we know them or didn't, or whether we're ignorant of them, they have all impacted how we have handled your word. Forgive us for how we've allowed these things to dictate our interpretation instead of allowing your word to be the thing that controls and guides us. Forgive us for that and help us do a better job of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said... Amen.